You're listening to Thinking Biblically. This is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically, a podcast dedicated to exploring how all scripture speaks to all of life. Part of that is hearing hearing people's stories of of how they personally came to come to grips with the truth of scripture, and that's what we're we're going to be doing today. But first, don't forget to subscribe and hit the notification bell. Uh, Also, feel free to leave your comments below, and if you have any questions or comments that you want to send to me personally, you can do that by uh, emailing comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Well, it is my pleasure uh, to introduce to you Avner Bosky. Uh, Avner, along with his wife Rachel, oversee Final Frontier Ministries. He's originally from Montreal, where I first met him uh, in uh, 1977, and that's not long before he married Rachel. They've lived in the Beersheba, Beersheba region of Israel for the past about 20 years. Avner is a writer. Uh, he's written several books, including Jews, Arabs, and the Middle East, a Messianic Perspective, as well as Israel, the Key to World Revival. And one of my favorite titles, it's the title, it's my favorite because I haven't really read the book. It's uh, called How to Be Messianic Without Becoming Meshuga. Meshuga, in case you don't know, is a Jewish expression meaning crazy. Avner also writes regular biblically-based opinion pieces on Israel and the Middle East, which I find most helpful. He's also a singer-songwriter. In fact, he was the one who first taught me several Messianic Jewish songs. He changed my life. Avner and Rachel have produced several CDs, singing in English and Hebrew, and incorporating a wide range of musical styles. His books and CDs are available on his website, which will be available in the description. There's a lot more that could be said about Avner, but it's time to let him speak for himself. Avner, it is so good to see you. It's such a joy. I'm sitting here looking at you and thinking, here's two Yiddish kinder from Montreal who are following the Messiah and being able to still be friends after 41 or 43 years. That's a long time. Well, maybe it's helped because we've hardly seen each other. (laughs) In fact, the the last time we saw each other... Uh, was uh, right here. Um, I hope people are seeing that okay. It was just, um, Robin and I were on a personal trip to Israel in 2015. In fact, this photo was taken uh, two years ago this very month. And uh, so on the far like, on the far left is is Rachel, and uh, she's next to Robin, my wife. And uh, we were w- walking around, and I looked to my left and coming down this alleyway i wonder if you were at that wonderful restaurant at the end of, of the alley um but um i turn and there you are and we had this little surprise reunion and managed to get this photo taken so that 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 was a highlight for us on that trip you, you notice the shirt is actually very unpatriotic it's from new york city it's katz's deli which was around the corner from where my dad was born Still uh, the second best uh, deli in uh, North America. The first best being, of, to me, the Snowden Deli. But. Okay, so we we do share a lot of commonality. I'm not too sure why we call this non-patriotic, because as as Jewish, I'm Jewish Canadian, you're Jewish Canadian Israeli, but New York, New York is New York. What can you yeah, say? Yeah, my dad was born in New York, so you know it's yeah, it's all in the family. Yeah, it is. Um. 
So what we want to just at least start with, I'm going to see how this goes. We talk for the next little while. Um, I would love it if you would be free to share your own personal story, your faith journey, however best to describe it. Um, there's, I think I know some of it, but I don't know. I think I'm going to, I'm going to learn some things uh, today. So I, I think people really enjoy hearing um, how you came to know Yeshua, Jesus as your Messiah, and um, learn to love the scriptures and so on. And so take it away. How long do we have? Three hours? Yeah, about that. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, well, I was, we're looking I was at approximately 50 minutes. If you're, uh, if, it's, if you're really good, Avner, we might go longer. Let's see how it goes. There you go. Well, I was born in Montreal in 53. Uh, my mom was from Montreal, also born there. Her mom and dad were born in Eastern Europe. All the family there basically got wiped out who didn't come over. My dad was born second child in, in New York City. His older brother was born in Poland. Basically, 92 out of the 100 people in Poland got wiped out. That is to say, murdered by the Nazis. So uh, I grew up um, in... Um, I guess you would say, like yourself, a, um, a community which was still connected in a heart sense to Europe, um, remembering European culture, Yiddish language. And so I went to a Yiddish school that actually you went to for a while as well. And I was in Yiddish drama in the Yiddish theater group, played in a uh, Yiddish mandolin orchestra. And, um, you know, so we studied English and French in the morning, Yiddish and Hebrew in the afternoon. And um, to me, that was normal. And it was also normal that we weren't normal because we lived in Quebec, which was a basically French Catholic province, which in itself was a minority within an English Protestant Canada, which was a minority compared to our uh, ravenous neighbor to the south, which was America. And so I was kind of in levels of minority going down all the way down. And um, in my uh, school and stuff, uh, I didn't quite fit in as well because my parents, although they had been raised uh, either Orthodox or very traditional, they had become communists. And um, so I was a secret communist all these years, even at a very young age, you know, the red flag of Canada. Uh, <laughs> did, did, right did, did their communism go back to Europe or is that something that developed after they came? Uh, no, it didn't. Well, of course, it went back to Marx, who was from Europe, but uh, I wouldn't get high marks to say that they both became communists in North America. Some of but it your mom, you said, you're, sorry, your mom was born in Montreal. Montreal. Yeah, and your yeah. dad was born in New York. A lot of it had to do in the 30s that uh, as my parents were teenagers uh, or just ending teenage stuff, is you had the rise of Hitler, the rise of fascism, the rise of the crushing of civil liberties, uh, and uh, you also had the rise of the Soviet Union, which said that it was a defender of uh, progressive thought and progressive political movement. And so they looked at Hitler and they looked at the promise of the Soviet Union and they said, I think that's going to work this time. Of course, it, it didn't. And uh, by the time that that information was out, my parents wouldn't believe what the papers said. 
because uh, that political perspective is very, very PC in its own way. Maybe CP for Communist Party, but it was PC in a certain sense if you read it in English instead of in Hebrew, going from left to right instead of right to left. So um, so I had this combination of Yiddish and uh, some Hebrew as well. Uh, my parents were not in favor of the state of Israel because communists in those days were anti-Israeli. And... Uh, so I never felt that warmly to Israel uh, at that time. It took me coming to faith, actually, to change my attitude about that. And, and, and they weren't alone. Uh, so there, today, maybe we could say majority of, of Jewish people in the world are supportive of Israel. Uh, there was a lot of ambivalence in those early years. And there was a minority yeah. that were really passionate for the resettling of the land. And so there are various it, pockets, non-religious yeah, and religious right. pockets of of, I don't even know if they called them anti-Zionists back then, but they certainly weren't necessarily supportive. Maybe they called themselves progressive, like people do today with all that goes along with that term. I know I went and I uh, got people to give 25 cents to buy a leaf on a tree for the Jewish National Fund. So it was strange because I was going to a school which sang Israeli folk songs and we studied Hebrew and uh, there were oranges and even... Uh, Carob brought from Israel and stuff. So I was kind of bifurcated in that sense. Uh, but uh, but I didn't I didn't have a heart feeling for, for Israel at the time. Jewish things, yes. Yiddish things, yes. My father had been a cantor uh, growing up in New York City, along with Yosela Rosenblatt and his choir. He had been a cantor for the U.S. Army. And so I, I loved Jewish music. I loved Jewish food, certainly. And, and I appreciated Jewish traditions. But the concept of a God behind that all, that was to me not anything that people really talked about. Those who had been through the Holocaust. I had a teacher there who had been a communist, went through the Holocaust in, uh, in Poland, and he became a, a very strong, what you would call a Haredi or a Haredi, ultra-Orthodox. He was one of my teachers. And... Um, I liked him, respected him, but I didn't understand this issue. He taught me for my bar mitzvah, but uh, we never talked about God, really. That wasn't part of the discussion. Jews don't talk about God. At least that's the way I grew up with, you know, talk about progressive things. But anyway, so <clears throat> as I was growing up in, uh, in Montreal, there were uh, family issues that caused a lot of pain in my life and started me searching, you know, for reasons for life. It's the purpose. And so I went through archaeology. I studied uh, mythology of all kinds of countries. And, and um, I ended up in the late 60s. What's going on there? We've got the Beatles. You've got Timothy Leary. And you've got Richard Alpert, who took acid and then called himself Baba Ramdas. And so there was this issue of beginning to look for spiritual realities, but not in terms of either Christianity or Judaism. And uh, so, you know, I began, I was in music, very young age, and, uh, uh, you know, folk music, classical training and stuff like that, and then started getting into rock and then, uh, and blues, of course, and uh, eventually got into kind of free jazz with a group called Villamart Blues Band in Montreal. Um, but I was looking, 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 and um, read a book by Timothy Leary called The Politics of Ecstasy, in which he said you have to get outside of your uh, stasis you have to discover spiritual realities. 
and of course that was through better living through chemicals, he said, that you could basically take these chemicals and achieve what some sadhu in India would have to spend 40 years sitting in a cave to get to. So I said, maybe there has to be something beyond pure materialism, right? And uh, by that time, I was kind of uh, heading toward university and political science. And uh, what I was being trained for uh, in studying these things was that, at least according to the communist perspective, is that if you can change uh, economic and social influences on people, you can actually evolve people, change them for the better. So that was the hope. And then in 1968, there was something called the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia which threw me for a loop because that looked like a colonialist um, uh, thing, just like all the bad capitalists I knew. And that caused me to really start thinking. It was all at the same time. And uh, listen to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band about I'd love to turn you on and different realities. And so I eventually began moving into what you called being an unlicensed pharmacist, um, I uh, began using uh, various uh, substances, and whereas my friends just wanted to be like SCTV and just, you know, kind of trip out or laugh a lot, I was looking for spiritual uh, answers, and I did acid as well and had some really strong encounters. Uh, by the time I got to McGill, uh, I began to realize that the teachers who were going to create a different society that were my gurus. They uh, they didn't know what to do. They were not the type of people I wanted to be in charge, and they probably would shoot me when they came to power. And I said, this is not an external change that's needed. There has to be something inside changing. So I got more and more involved in Eastern religions. At the time, you had Guru Maharaji, you had TM, uh, and of course, all the leaders of TM in Montreal at that time were all Jewish, and they all wanted to charge for a mantra. And I had no money, plus I wouldn't have paid it on principle. And so uh, in any case, I was looking and looking and having experiences. And I began to realize that there's a spiritual world out there with experiences. And I began to have some. And then I eventually uh, met a guy who was a Satanist from Texas who was up in Montreal. And I realized some of these experiences I was beginning to have were not so good. They were evil. Uh, they were not kosher. And uh, even some of the Hindu experiences as well. And I realized there is a world of the spirit, but not everything in it is kosher. And in my day, then people thought everything in the world of the world of the spirit is kosher. So I began to realize that there's something called evil, spiritually, sin, spiritually. And that was a shock for me. Uh, and uh, I began working in various jobs in Montreal and doing work in music and stuff like that. And um, what happened then after the Yom Kippur War in Israel in 73, which I wasn't so much involved in or thinking about or realizing the significance, I ended up uh, reading a book. A friend of mine was a Dutch guy. He had been in Dutch underground. And uh, he was a very bold man. And uh, he started sharing with me at work. I was uh, working up in uh, Chamedy, the Jesus Plastics Company. And, For those who uh, don't know, that's a Montreal suburb. Yeah, Jesus Island, actually. So many places yeah. in Canada yeah. Montreal are connected to uh, Christian roots. And uh, Yeah, Il Jesus. 
Yeah, it was called um, The Lake Replanted Earth. It was by Hal Lindsey. And he basically says in his book that the most significant event of the 20th century is the return of the Jewish people to their homeland according to the words and prophecies of the Hebrew prophets. I never heard that. Didn't hear it in Jewish school. Didn't hear it in uh, anything that I'd ever run into. And certainly in the New Age movement, that wasn't the big thing. Uh, what we call New Age now. Then it was just the old age. But, you know, now you and I are dealing with older age, but that's a different thing, too. And uh, so what happened is uh, I read this book, and he's describing changes happening in the world. And uh, then he describes about Israel, and he talks about the prophets. And then he says, okay, now that you've seen this, look at what the scriptures say about the Messiah of Israel. Now, prior, now this prior, to, this, prior to this, even the references in the Hebrew Bible, were, not, right. were they familiar to you? Not mostly, no. I yeah. mean, I knew I could yeah. find them. I have a Yiddish Bible, but, I, you know, you only read it on Tuesdays, you know, type of thing. And uh, so what happened is um, when I heard this description about Yeshua, uh, Jesus, which I thought was his name at the time, you know, I couldn't relate to him culturally for various reasons because, first of all, all the pictures I saw in, in the churches in Quebec made him look like a, a French guy, maybe a French poet or something like that. But um, the issue of him being Jewish or the Messiah or prophecies, that was all new to me. And uh, he talked about these things in this book. And then he said, why don't you ask God to show you if this is true? And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty good. That's, I don't, you know, it's not secondhand here. Let me go to the source, if there's a source. I didn't know if there was a source. I really didn't know if there was a God. And so I ended up uh, on a bus on the way to work one day, and I ended up praying. I, I mean, I, I call it praying now. I just said, God, if you're there, if you exist. And then all of a sudden, I got this download in my spirit. I, all of a sudden, I said, if you exist, I'm in deep trouble. Because I am now 20 years old. I've never paid any attention to you. I use your name as a curse word. If you exist, I'm in deep trouble. So that was a conviction of sin. But not from anybody specifically. It was just as I began to talk to God for the first time in my life. And I said, so if this is true, and if Jesus is the Messiah and all this, my atonement and all this, would you forgive my sins that come into my life? And like I didn't know. If there was anyone out there, I didn't have a huge amount of faith. I just said these words and said, maybe it's all of a sudden, boom, the holy presence of God entered into me. I could feel like hot oil coming into me from the presence of God. And nobody, I mean, there were 10 people on the bus or whatever. Nobody, I was in the back of the bus. And, and all of a sudden, I just knew if I die, I'm going to be with the Lord forever. This is the purpose in life. Now my life makes sense. This like, is all. Boom. And this is all. This one encounter on the bus. On the bus on the way to work. You went from zero to 100 in seconds. This it was not my doing, actually. I didn't even have a huge amount of faith. I didn't know if there was a God there. So he really was waiting, and he was kind of just happy. I opened the door a crack. He kicked it down, you know, but it, very, very beautifully. And uh, and I had to get off the bus so I would miss my stop. And in Shambhadi, if you miss a stop, it's like two miles between stops. Anyway, so I thought this is it. I don't know what happened. Uh, I didn't have language for it. 
uh, I knew probably most Christians didn't believe in this stuff because I'd never heard any of them ever share any of it with me. All I knew is Christians, they mostly didn't like Jews and they ate ham. That's all I knew. And they didn't have sex on Fridays at least. And uh, so to me, it was like, I don't know what to do with this. And it's a long story, but eventually I discovered my other Jewish friend had come to faith about a couple of weeks before me. We had been living together, uh, three of us, four of us, down uh, off of Queen Mary. And um, he gave me that book, actually. And so I started talking with him about it. He said, yeah, I also believe in this. So here we are, two Jewish guys believing in this. And as far as we were concerned, that's it. Nobody else in the world believes in this stuff. No other Jews. And uh, certainly Christians don't believe in it because never heard anything from them. And most Christians I saw were fighting with each other and not so nice. I had once gotten beaten up by about 20, 30 uh, Catholic and Protestant ecumenically minded kids near uh, Benny, near uh, West uh, Hill uh, Swimming Pool, near the Fraser Hickson Library. And, uh, One of the problems about having two Montrealers having a, a, a talking is you're throwing out all these references that that uh, are precious to us, but the rest of the world doesn't know. Like when you said That's Queen right. Mary, most people pictured that. How did all of a sudden you get near that big boat? That's right. Well, Queen Mary was, of course, a, a British ruler, and you know what they say: she was every inch a ruler. But that's a different issue. And uh, anyway, so uh, my friend, I told my friend, I said, you know, I'm, I think I'm a believer now. And he was really touched. He started crying. And I said, it's all right. Everything's fine. And then he said, well, would you come with me to church next week? And I said, okay. So we went and I, I went to a church. I forget the name of it. Uh, and we walked in. And there was a guy screaming about love. I said, well, this guy evidently doesn't know Jesus. Um but eventually I ended up hanging out there for a while, played bass in a kind of gospel stuff and, and uh, very different music. Um, a group came to Montreal in uh, November. Uh, what year was that? Uh, 74. Called Lamb. And uh, they sang at a place called Coats and Luke Bible Chapel. And I think I may have even met you there. I'm not sure. Maybe yes, maybe no. Um but I wasn't I really, there, but that became our fellowship, and and uh, uh-huh. we were actually married there. Wow! Um, a little, a little tiny, tiny assembly of believers in one of the densest Jewish populations in the entire world, and not That's densest right. uh, yes. in terms of of population. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. And what happened was uh, they told me there's a movement of Jews all over the world in America, not so much in Canada. Things always take slower to get to Canada. But there are Jews. There's a Messianic Jewish movement. And he gave me a Bible in Yiddish, a New Testament. And uh, so I went home and I was praying to Yeshu, which is how I knew the name. Uh, Yeshu is actually a rabbinic uh, tweaking of the name. Uh, it's an acronym that most people don't know, uh, but the real name is Yeshua. And uh, so all of a sudden I began to realize, and there's no internet, you know, there's no just mail occasionally, you know. And... Uh, I began to realize I met some people who had a Bible study in Montreal. They were Jewish. She was from Israel originally, and he was from Montreal, the Weissmans. And I began to, you know, went to a Pesach, a Passover Seder and stuff. And I felt a call on my life to try to communicate the message of Yeshua to the whole world. I didn't want to go to the Jews. I knew that would be problematic. But I thought maybe I'll do something easy, like smuggle Bibles into Russia, you know. 
And uh, I ended up going working with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, down in California, studied there. And there, people said, you're a Jew, you should meet other Jews. So here's a group called Jews for Jesus. So I met them, and they kind of uh, drafted me, and I was part of a group called the Liberated Wailing Wall. I was with them for two, three years, uh, traveling all around the States and stuff. At that time, I met my wife-to-be, Rachel, who had a group called the Star of David Singers. And uh, I looked at her the first time, and I said, take your eyes off of her. Uh, She's too beautiful to look at. And uh, she also had a deep intercessory heart. That's a long story. But God began to work with me about Israel. I began to read a Jerusalem Post. I read the book, O Jerusalem, singing, of course, music from the Psalms and Bible and Hebrew. And all of a sudden, I realized, wow, something's going on with the country of Israel, not only in this book, The Late Great Planet Earth, but also in the flesh in that country. And I found myself being drawn to Israel, which ended up me leaving the ministry I was involved in, coming back to Montreal and beginning to study Hebrew again, and then finally going to kibbutz on Israel, in Israel. That time, Rachel and I got engaged, and two days after we were married back in Canada, in Montreal, we ended up flying to Israel, where I was studying Hebrew U, and Rachel was working at the medical school there. So God put this whole piece in us, not only about, hey, isn't it interesting that what God is doing in the earth, but he wanted us involved in that in this country here. So uh, I was involved with uh, studying Jewish history at uh, Hebrew University and then uh, at McGill. Finally, I said, you know, I realized over the years people need to know the word. Uh, a lot of people don't know the word and don't know how to live according to the word. And I ended up going to a, a school called Dallas Seminary. I took a, a THM there. And then immediately after that, we returned to Israel. I was a tent maker. I worked as a tour guide for many years, as well as full-time in pastoral ministry and evangelistic outreach and teaching and stuff like that. For those uh, who don't understand the term, sorry, sorry, Avner, uh, tent maker, uh, Avner's referring to, he was uh, spending a lot of time on ministry related and teaching (laughs) and things like that, but he was earning a living as a tour guide. Mm-hmm. And that's the tent making. It's a reference to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Back to you. Paul was a tent maker by profession. Right. But uh, he only did that when no one else was supporting him. When he was supported, he ended up spending most of his time teaching and preaching and evangelizing and getting beaten up. Um, <laughs> Sorry, so, that's yeah, not funny. So, <laughs> Sorry. It's just... my wife, Go ahead. My wife, Rachel, my wife, Rachel, was involved also uh, through her family, her father had had a Messianic Jewish center in uh, Pittsburgh. She put together this group. She wrote songs which became anthems for the Messianic Jewish movement. And uh, she always felt from a very young age that the Lord had called her to be in Israel. So that kind of dovetailed. And um, God broke our hearts for the needs uh, of the believers in Israel and the needs of the people in Israel as well. And so after we finished our education, came back, and we were involved full-time tour guide, full-time in ministry, uh, until it's called Burning the Candle at Three Ends. And uh, so eventually uh, went full-time in ministry again uh, with another uh, Jewish ministry. I've been involved with three or four of them, so I've uh, been around the block with them, and uh, there's some good things about many of them, and, you know, everybody's human. And... Uh, 
nothing human is foreign to me, as somebody once said, Josie Kaczynski. And uh, so, um, yeah, so that kind of is where we ended up. Uh, went, uh, many other things happened in our life, like everybody. Uh, we've been involved in uh, doing a lot of music. Right now working on a project, uh, music of nine songs, four or five of them are in Yiddish. One of them is a French-Canadian song with uh, uh, a Jewish uh, meaning to it. And, and Rachel's written some songs, and one of them is an Israeli folk song with uh, kind of a Song of Solomon messianic feeling. So that's called Shtetl Dreams. That'll be out probably in the next few months. And uh, you can, of course, uh, if you want to be in touch and hear about that, it's a website called davidstent.org. No apostrophes, no capitals, davidstent.org. So that, that's where people can get hold of your books, and they're available yes. that in, in hard copy as well as digital download. Same thing with the yes. CDs, right? So off your web, yes. website, both digital versions and and yes, does anybody buy actual CDs? That's that's another story, this but it's all available question. there. I'm looking for those who want to you know, produce records these days. That's a whole different thing. That is. So well, there's a, there's a store right by here, Avner, specializing in vinyl, and I got the, the load down from the owner. I think he was the owner, and it's pretty amazing. The, the, the stuff the that was precious Israel, to us, it's all back. Sure. Part of the problem with vinyl in Israel is it's so hot that when you sit on the vinyl in the car, it kind of burns you. Yeah, but you don't so sit you on records, cool. Avner. Oh, that's also vinyl. <laughs> no. <laughs> Folks, if you're considering going to Israel, don't worry. If you bring your records with you, they're not going to melt. No, but the seats, you know, vinyl seats. Yeah, be careful with the vinyl seats. Vinyl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They say all jokes which need to be explained are not funny, but that's another issue. So that's a little bit of, uh, you know, what we've uh, been through and, and, and what we're still going through. We have four sons. We're involved, uh, many of them in ministry, and uh, they're talented in terms of acting and music and, and various things and uh, teaching. Um, are they all with you in Israel? I can't remember. Three are here, and one is in a foreign country called America. America. Okay, there's a few people there still. Israel's actually recently surpassed. Uh, it's now the, the largest Jewish country in the world. For the first time since probably the Babylonian exile. That's that's true. There's yeah. an old Yiddish story, a joke, of an old woman in a bus in Ramat Gan in Tel Aviv, and she's talking to her grandson. She's talking in Yiddish. He's answering in Hebrew. She's responding in Yiddish. And a man looks to her and says, Lady, why are you doing this? What's going on? Why aren't you speaking Hebrew? She says, I don't want him to forget that he's a Jew. <laughs> so this joke says that sometimes some of the, the sweetness of history, the shtetl dreams, people forget about. They don't remember some of the joys of identity because life is so pressured. But the other side of the shtetl dreams um, is that sometimes people think everything was wonderful back in Europe or in Montreal. And that God says, no, actually, in, in Ezekiel 39, I'm going to take all the Jewish people from all over the world and not going to leave anybody anywhere except back in Israel. That's the future. So we don't want to be caught in shtetl dreams when we're going somewhere else, ultimately. Yeah, and for and those who don't know, the, the shtetl were the, the, the Jewish towns in, uh, in Europe, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, 
And I'm running to people who've never seen that movie. You've got to see Fiddle on the Roof if you haven't, and, and that's life in the, in the shtetl. Uh, and if you don't have time to see the whole movie, just listen. Then you'll hear the fiddler on the roof. Thank you. Thanks for that. Uh, I do need to correct myself. I, I, I said something in error, um, and it was about Israel being the largest Jewish country in the world. Actually, that's been uh, Israel has had the most Jewish people compared to other countries in the world for a long time. But just recently, it now has the majority of Jewish people in the world. I believe it's it's uh, yeah I I think that's right that there's just a little well, bit more it, 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 it in Israel. It depends who you ask. Hmm? It depends who you ask. America used to have six million plus Jewish people, and Israel used to have five and a half million plus Jewish people. So maybe that's that's, that's what is that what it is? Now Israel Israel now has over six and a half million okay. Jewish so people. So I said it right the first time actually. And America has. Uh, six million or less Jewish people. Um, and uh, there are a bunch of Jews all over the world that are not quite listed. I know when we were living in St. Petersburg, Russia, and we did these messianic festivals around uh, the uh, Europe with Jonathan Bernis, that I talked with some of the leaders like of the Jewish community in uh, Minsk, the Jewish community in Kiev, uh, and they told me, we spoke in Yiddish with them, they told me, you know, we have an official listing of how many Jews there are, but the facts are it's at least three times as many. Mm -hmm. But because of anti-Semitism, Jews stopped identifying as Jews in the Soviet Union because they couldn't get a job, etc. And now they want to leave Russia, and they're not listed as Jews anymore, even though they're totally Jewish. So, you know, it could be that we have something like, I think, officially 14.5 million Jews. It could be we have 20, 25 million Jews without knowing that. But God Alain Vest, God himself is the one who knows. Right. And he alone. Um, going back to songs, do you have something to share with us? Boy, I have, I, you know, uh, it's called, uh, I'm glad to be uh, uh, an Oki from Skokie. It's an old uh, country Jewish song. Let me see what I have here. It's not in tune. Children of Israel, 
actually, that was one of the songs you taught me in 77 or 78. And, and you I, know, it's still going strong. It's like a Duracell <laughs> battery, an EverReady battery or whatever it is. The oh, you think it's battery. on the, the, the Billboard Messianic charts? Well, um, it's a good one. Here's one more, which is on the charts. And this is my wife wrote it. Psalm 117, the whole psalm, all two verses. Hallelujah, Adonai, kol goyim shabachu, kol haumim, ki gavar aleinu chasdo, ve'emet Adonai le'olam. And in English, oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye peoples. For his loving kindness is great to us, his truth is everlasting. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And that is another one of those that uh, you taught me on that day that we've carried forward every year at our Passover Seder. We sing that as part of the Hallel. And, there you uh, go. You, and you and Rachel were... Uh, so uh, gracious to uh, join us for our virtual Passover Seder that we had this past year that you can look up on our channel, my channel. And uh, yeah, I know you put the guitar down, but can you play a more recent one? Or are they all too copywritten? Oh, nothing is copywritten, you know. Uh, I mean, everything is copywritten, but it doesn't matter, you know. Who's who's going to make money being a musician these days? You know, that's the, it's like Shalom Aleichem's question, what's the real Jewish question is how a Jew is going to make a living not through music that's for sure um, let's see here um, I'm trying to think um, yeah okay so uh, from our new album in Yiddish of course nobody understands but you know what they say when the resurrection of the dead happens all these People rise from the dead and they'll be looking for some new Yiddish songs, a few Yiddish books to read, you know. So it's important for these things. Let's see here. We have... Uh, that's too high, so... By the waters, the waters of Babylon, Shami Ashavnu Gaham, Bachinu, Bachinu, Bezochenu, Zochrenu, Bezochrenu et Zion. By the Taichen, by the Bavlishetaichen. 
Beautiful. So that was uh, Yiddish, English, and Hebrew, right? That's correct. Right. We do it in Turkish, but only for those who understand. I see. Well, a lot of people don't understand the Yiddish or the Hebrew, uh, but uh, um, there's there might be some viewers, Avner, that um, aren't familiar with even what Yiddish is. Could you explain uh, what the language of Yiddish is and why it's important in, in Jewish history? Sure. Very simply, Yiddish is the uh, language that Jewish people spoke from going back to about 900, 1,000 A.D. until uh, quite recently. Um, it's a blend of Hebrew and older German and a little bit of uh, Slavic in there. It's a language of the fiddler on the roof culture, the language of all the Jews, six million basically, who were killed, murdered in World War II. Um, it's a very, it's, I call it the envelope of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the letter. The language is the envelope. And so Yiddish was a thousand years of Jewish history. And it's the envelope that we communicated in. We wrote poetry in, history, music. Um, it was part of our life. And until uh, Hitler destroyed so many of us, it was very, very much a part of our life. And so um, today, very few people speak it. I was just in a recording studio the other day, yesterday, and uh, there was some Hasidic people doing a, a recording there, and we talked in Yiddish because they were speaking Yiddish. I walked in, why not, you know? Uh, but very few people speak it today, and it's a very sweet language. And those who know Bayerisch, uh, let's say uh, German from Bavaria or Plattdeutsch from uh, from uh, the border between uh, Netherlands and uh, Germany, understand a lot of Yiddish. Uh, it's a very, very sweet language. I grew up with it. I love it. And um, uh, there you go. Yeah, so my, my parents, too, they grew up and they came from that part of Europe, and uh, Yiddish was a part of our household. Uh, uh, Avner went to a Yiddish school full-time, right? And uh, both my wife and I, when we were, of course, when we were children, uh, went after regular school. Uh, it didn't stick, sadly. We still know a little smattering of Yiddish expressions. Um, but for so many, Yiddish has died out. But there are still our pockets of people like the ultra-Orthodox that have kept it alive. Yeah. And certainly kept alive in our hearts. As Billy Crystal is two generations removed from Yiddish. So imagine how good it would have been. Two generations back. <laughs> um, there's a question I have about something that uh, you referred to earlier on in your story that I was wondering if you could elaborate. And uh, it had to do with when you began to dabble with um, with um, with drugs and, and seeking things spiritual. You discovered something that I think a lot of people still deny, and that is the existence of evil in the spiritual realm. Are you able to elaborate a little bit more on your experience and and that that subject of the reality of evil? Sure. You know, uh, there's an element where I don't want to, of course, get into what I would call spiritual pornography uh, and describe stuff like that. Because, you know, there's always have you ever noticed that when people want to hear about bad things and that's not what you're doing now. But when people want to hear about bad things, they'll always pay more attention to the the evil part of the testimony then about what happened after the person comes to faith. It's more exciting, some people think. But, but, and uh, at the, at the yeah, same I time, began, um, 
casting a blind eye and denying the reality of evil gets yes. people into big, big trouble. Very, so, very uh, true. Yeah. Very true. I, I began to discover the existence of spiritual beings uh, that I would now understand to be demonic. Uh, but at that time I thought, oh, these are spiritual entities who are coming and talking to me. I had very detailed spiritual dreams uh, that I could tell you, you know, everything about it and describe everything about it. It was not like a dream. It was like a reality. I had uh, the uh, awareness of great evil in terms of presence coming to me. I saw even evil in terms of things like Moloch and uh, in the Bible. Baal and stuff like that. Um, and I was kind of surprised because I, I didn't really believe in this either. I didn't believe in satanic. I didn't believe in God. And uh, But seeing this evil, and some of it was quite intelligent and erudite. Could have taught in a university. Um, and uh, made me realize that if there is spiritual evil, maybe there's spiritual good. So I was kind of going in reverse, and it was actually the existence of the demonic and the satanic that made me wonder if there's actually a God of the Bible. And uh, so I, I kind of backed up into the kingdom that way. <laughs> I like that, backed up into the kingdom. Um, years ago, um, and actually recently too, so you know a Jewish believer, you've heard of him, Joel Rosenberg, who's written... Um, he's written some nonfiction books, but he's, I guess he's more known for his historical, uh, not historic, political fiction. Thriller, thrillers. Thrillers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, I think I've read all of them. I don't, I don't agree with some of his perspective, but I find him very insightful, um, it, in how he works in his political analysis and what's going on in the world. And I think it was the, one of the first books, um, there's a, it's all fiction. Um, there's the, um, I think he's the ex-chief of Mossad, which is the Israel, Israeli secret service. He's having a conversation with an American and he's saying to, to him, the difference between you and us, us Israelis, and how we deal with issues of things like terrorism and, and these threats is he says, we believe in evil and you don't. Oh, that's so. I, I haven't read that book. I know Joel, um, and um, I know that he's had books on the New York Times bestseller list quite quite often. And uh, his personal friends with many people he used to be a speechwriter for presidents who lost their elections. And uh, but um, this issue of being aware of evil, I think that's one thing that Jewish history shows us. It's not just like pie in the sky by and by. It's uh, terror and destruction on Earth right now. And of course, it's very politically incorrect. But somehow, uh, what the Bible says about the nature of God and about that anything else is a false god, and that the enemy is trying to destroy the Jewish people, and he'll use all kinds of nations, even superpowers, like in the book of Daniel, to do that. This is where we're living and where we're walking even today. Yeah, so I know this is a big topic that could that take us another couple of hours, but I wonder, with all your experience in being in Israel for these past uh, 20 or so years and <clears throat> been involved in ministry and you know the scriptures, and as I mentioned before... 40, I really pre 40, 40 years. 40 years? Yes, sir. Okay, 40 time years. Fly time flies when you're having fun. 
Okay, 40 years. I stand corrected. You would know better. Um, well, we're sitting. We're both of us are sitting, so we're sitting corrected. <laughs> um, for a lot of people, a lot of uh, of well-intentioned people, when they hear the news about Israel and they they see the photos about uh, the poor children in in Gaza being hurt by an Israeli retaliation and it makes Israel look like the horrible oppressor and and talk about Israeli apartheid and some of these things. Um, I, and I know it would be very difficult doing it in such a short period of time, but um, coming off of the discussion of, of, you know, that there's real evil in the world, how would you picture it for people when they when you hear somebody say this kind of thing would look look at this horrible thing that Israel's doing. How do you respond to something like that? Yeah, I remember sitting in a library at McGill University looking at all the uh, uh, propaganda books which came out of Syria and uh, Jordan and Egypt at that time. This would be in 1978, something like that. If we're talking from the Bible, and again, most people don't do it that way. But God says in, in Romans 11, 20 and 29, he says, the gifts and calling on the Jewish people are irrevocable or without repentance. So we start from that point. That means whatever calling God has given to the Jews still exists. Whatever gifts he's given to them still exist. So we need to look at world history through that if we believe what the Bible says. Because God basically says, I'm never going to abandon Israel in spite of all that she's done, which is Jeremiah 31 through 33. And so if God promises in Isaiah 11, 11, and 12 to restore the Jewish people to the land, and if he says that that's going to become a bone of contention where you're going to have all the nations of the world coming against Israel, like in Zechariah 12 through 14 and Ezekiel 38 and 39, when he focuses specifically on Middle Eastern countries, which he calls Edom, which would be actually uh, who is living in the West Bank historically and also in Jordan. If you talk about the fact that any spiritual entity that does not acknowledge that Yeshua has come into flesh as the Son of God and Messiah, that exempts the whole Middle East, basically, because that's one of the main teachings of the main religion in the Middle East. And so we have basically a situation where the Bible tells us the world's turning against the Jewish people, the world refuses to recognize that God is restoring the Jewish people, and the world's going to come against the Jewish state. So once we start from that point, we can talk about specifics. One of the things in terms of children in Gaza, and again, any children who die at any point, that's a terrible thing. But we don't talk about the fact that you have a jihadi group associated with the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda, who are firing rockets into Israeli civilian populations from Gazan civilian populations. So that means if you try to stop those rockets from hitting your own people, you have to be very careful, and Israel is. I just ran into a guy named uh, Colonel Kemp, who was the head of NATO for some time, and he said there's no country in the world that has done as much to prevent civilian casualties as the state of Israel. KEMP, you can look them up on Google. So I think what we have here is we have the using of propaganda, both by setting up terror groups within civilian populations to attack 
Jewish civilian populations, and then using the blood as a propaganda tool. That's the way it is. That's the way it's been, and it's going to get worse. So we better start getting used to it. In Israel, we've always been told to value the other side and try to not cause casualties as much as possible. That's our testimony. That's certainly not the testimony of the world media. And unfortunately, the world media and Pravda are getting more and more to looking alike every day. Pravda is the Russian propaganda newspaper. It means truth in Russian, and it was anything but. Right. Well, thank you for that. And as I said, we could spend a lot longer on that. And hopefully you'll be able to come back and maybe we could we could talk the whole time about Israel and, and the issues at hand, if, if, if you'd be open to that. Tim, Tim Hortons and, and maple syrup coffee. <laughs> Um, well, I'm a Hortons Canadian, by the way. Yes, there was no such thing when I grew up. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it, mm-hmm. being in Ontario now. It feels like it's always been here, though. Anyway, it has been. <laughs> thank you, Avner, so much uh, uh, for doing this. Um, as Avner mentioned, you can contact him and access his resources uh, by going to David's Tent. D-A-V-I-D-S-T-E-N-T dot O-R-G and you can uh, learn more about what he's doing. I encourage you to subscribe to his uh, his whether you call it newsletter or your emails. Uh, they uh, get ready, folks. They are a little on the long side, but it's because Avner does his research. They're often heavily footnoted and uh, and you you'll You're only four to six, four to six pages on the average. Well, when and I read it, it's just one long thing in my email, so it's just... It's kind of like Star uh, Star Wars, you know, that scroll at the beginning, <laughs> the flying scroll, so... Yeah. Anyway, um, Abner's very well-informed, he's very articulate, and um, you'll be very uh, blessed by his writing, I'm sure, and uh, you can find out how to contact him from davidstent.org. So thank you, everybody, for joining us on this episode of Thinking Biblically. Thanks again to Avner. Uh, hopefully we'll get to see him again. Remember to subscribe to this channel, and you can contact me by emailing comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Thinking Biblically.